Part One of Five Months at Anzac. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Five Months at Anzac: A Narrative of Personal Experiences of the Officer Commanding the Fourth Field Ambulance, Australian Imperial Force, by Joseph Livesley Beeston. Dedicated to the officers, non-commissioned officers and men of the 4th Field Ambulance AIF, of whose loyalty and devotion to duty the writer hereby expresses his deep appreciation. Shortly after the outbreak of war, after the first contingent had been mobilised, and while they were undergoing training, it became evident that it would be necessary to raise another force to proceed on the heels of the first. Three infantry brigades with their ambulances had already been formed. Orders for a fourth were now issued, and naturally the ambulance would be designated Fourth Field Ambulance. The fourth brigade was composed of the 13th Battalion, New South Wales, 14th Victoria, 15th Queensland, and 16th Western Australia, commanded respectively by Lieutenant Colonel Burnage, Lieutenant Colonel Courtney, Lieutenant Colonel Cannon and Lieutenant Colonel Pope. The brigade was in charge of Colonel Monash, V.D., with Lieutenant Colonel McGlynn as its brigade major. As it will be necessary from time to time to allude to the component parts of the ambulance, it may be as well to describe how an ambulance is made up. It is composed of three sections, known as A, B and C, the total of all ranks being 254 on a war strength. It is subdivided into bearer, tent and transport divisions. Each section has its own officers and is capable of acting independently. Where there is an extended front, it is frequently desirable to detach sections and send them to positions where the work is heaviest. As the name implies, the bearers convey the wounded to the dressing station or field hospital, as the case may be. Those in the tent division dress the cases and perform nursing duties, while the transport division undertakes their conveyance to base hospital. It was decided to recruit the 4th Field Ambulance from three states, A section from Victoria, B from South Australia, C from Western Australia. Recruiting started in Broadmeadows, Victoria, on the 19th of October, 1914, and 30 men enrolled from New South Wales were concluded in A section. Toward the end of November, B section from South Australia joined us and participated in the training. On the 22nd of December, we embarked on a transport forming one of a convoy of 18 ships. The 19th ship, Blank, joined after we left Albany. Details from the ambulance were supplied to different ships and the officers distributed among the fleet. Our last port in Australia was Albany, which was cleared on the last day of 1914. A beautiful night and clear day, with the sea as smooth as the proverbial glass. The Voyage The convoy was under the command of Captain Brewis, a most capable and courteous officer, but a strict disciplinarian. 
To a landsman his control of the various ships and his forethought in obtaining supplies seemed little short of marvellous. I had the good fortune to be associated with Captain Brewis on the passage from Colombo to Alexandria on board the blank, and his friendship is a pleasant memory. The fleet was arranged in three lines, each ship being about three lengths astern of the one ahead. The sight was most inspiring, and made one feel proud of the privilege of participation. The blank towed the submarine AF-2, and kept clear of the convoy, sometimes ahead, then astern, so that we viewed the convoy from all points. The day after leaving Albany, a steamer, which proved to be the blank, joined us with C-section of our ambulance. Signals were made for the blank-blank to move ahead and the blank to drop astern, the blank moving into the vacant place. The manoeuvre was carried out in a most seamanlike manner, and Captain Young of the blank received many compliments on his performance. Three days later a message was flagged from the blank that Major Stewart, who commanded the sea section of the ambulance, was ill with enteric, and that his condition was serious. The flagship then sent orders, also by flag. Colonel Beeston will proceed to blank and will remain there till next port, blank to provide transport. A boat was hoisted out, and Sergeant Draper as a nurse, walking my orderly, my little dog Paddy and I were lowered from the boat deck. What appeared smooth water proved to be a long undulating swell. No water was shipped, but the fleet at all times was not visible when the boat was in the trough of the sea. However, the blank was manoeuvred so as to form a shelter, and we gained the deck by means of the companion ladder as comfortably as if we had been in harbour. Major Stewart's illness proved to be of such a nature that his disembarkation at Colombo was imperative, and on our arrival there he was left in the hospital. The heat in the tropics was very oppressive, and the horses suffered considerably. One day all the ships carrying horses were turned about and steamed for about twenty minutes in the opposite direction, in order to obtain a breath of air for the poor animals. In the holds the temperature was ninety degrees, and steamy at that. The sight of horses down a ship's hold is a novel one. Each is in a stall of such dimensions that the animal cannot be knocked about. All heads are inwards, and each horse has its own trough. At a certain time in the day, loosened hay is issued. This is the signal for a prodigious amount of stamping and noise on the part of the animals. They throw their heads about, snort and neigh, and seem as if they would jump over the barriers in their frantic effort to get a good feed. Horses on land are nice beasts, but on board ship they are a totally different proposition. One intelligent neddy stable just outside my cabin spent the night in stamping on the adjacent steam pipe. Consequently, my sleep was of a disturbed nature, and not so restful as one might look for on a sea voyage. When he became tired, the brute on the opposite side took up the refrain, so it seemed like more signalling on a large scale. We reached Colombo on the 13th of January, and found a number of ships of various nationalities in the harbour. Our convoy almost filled it. We were soon surrounded by boats offering for sale all kinds of things, 
most the edibles. Of course, no one was allowed on board. After arranging for Major Stewart's accommodation at the hospital, we transferred from the blank to the blank. The voyage was resumed on the 15th. When a few days out, one of the ships flagged that there were two cases of appendicitis on board. The convoy was stopped, the ship drew near ours, and lowered a boat with the two cases, which was soon alongside. Meanwhile, a large box which had been made by our carpenter was lowered over the side by a winch on the boat deck. The cases were placed in it and hoisted aboard, where the stretcher-bearers conveyed them to the hospital. Examination showed that an operation was necessary in both cases, and the necessary preparations were made. The day was a glorious one, not a cloud in the sky, and the sea almost oily in its smoothness. As the hospital was full of cases of measles, it was decided to operate on deck a little after the hospital. A guard was placed to keep inquisitive onlookers at a distance, and the two operations were carried out successfully. It was a novel experience to operate under these conditions. When one looked up from the work, instead of the usual tiled walls of a hospital theatre, one saw nothing but the sea and the transports. After all, they were ideal conditions, for the air was absolutely pure and free from any kind of germ. When the convoy was stopped, the opportunity was taken to transfer Lieutenant Colonel Beam from the blank to the blank. There had been a number of fatal cases on board the latter vessel, and it was deemed advisable to place a senior officer on board. On arrival at Aden, I had a personal experience of the worth of the Red Cross Society. A number of cases had died aboard one of the transports, and I had to go over to investigate. The sea was fairly rough, the boat rising and falling ten or twelve feet. For a landsman to gain a ladder on the ship's side under these conditions is not a thing of undiluted joy. Anyhow, I missed the ladder and went into the water. The first fear one had was that the boat would drop on one's head. However, I was hauled on board by two hefty sailors. Inspection finished, we were rowed back to our own ship, wet and cold. By the time home was reached, I felt pretty chilly. A hot bath soon put me right, and a dressing-gown was dug out of the Red Cross goods supplied to the ship, in which I remained while my clothes were drying. Sewn inside was a card on which was printed, Will the recipient kindly write his personal experiences to George W. Parker, Dalesford, Victoria, Australia? I wrote to Mr. Parker from Sewers. I would recommend everyone sending articles of this kind to put a similar notice inside. To be able to acknowledge kindness is as gratifying to the recipient as the knowledge of its usefulness is to the giver. The voyage to Sewers, which was reached on the 28th of January, was uneventful. We arrived there about four in the morning and found most of our convoy around us when we got on the deck at daylight. Here we got news of the Turks' attack on the canal. We heard that there had been a brush with the Turks in which Australians had participated, and all the ships were to be sandbanked around the bridge. Bags of flour were used on the blank. The submarine cast off from the blank outside and came alongside our ship, 
I was invited to go and inspect her, and Paddy accompanied me. On going below, however, I left him on deck, and by some means he slipped overboard. This appears to run in the family on this trip. One of the crew fished him out, and he was sent up onto the blank. When I got back, I found Colonel Monash, the brigadier, running up and down the deck with the dog, so he would not catch cold. The colonel was almost as fond of the dog as I was. Egypt All along the canal we saw troops entrenched, chiefly Indians. This at the time was very novel. We little knew then how familiar trenches would become. At various points, about every four or five miles, a warship was passed. The troops on each ship stood to attention, and the bugler blew the general salute. Port Said was reached in the afternoon, and here a great calamity overtook me. Paddy was lost. He was seen going ashore in the boat which took the mails. Though orders were out against anyone's leaving the ship, Colonel Munnish offered me permission to go and look for him. With Sergeant Nicholson and Walkley I started off and tramped through all sorts of slums and places without any success. Finally we returned to the waterfront, where one of the natives, a little more intelligent than the others, took me to the custom house close by. One of the officials could speak a little English, and in response to my inquiry he turned up a large book. Then I saw, among a lot of Egyptian writing, Paddy for AMC Mormon. This corresponded to his identity disc, which was round his neck. He was out at the abattoirs, where, after a three-mile drive, we obtained him. His return to the ship was hailed by the men with vociferous cheers. On arrival at Alexandra, we made arrangements for the disembarkation of all our sick, Lieutenant Colonel Beach superintending their transport. We left soon after by rail for Heelwan, arriving after nightfall. A guide was detailed to conduct us to camp, and we set out to march a couple of miles across the desert. It was quite cold, so that the march was rather good, but loaded as we were in full marching order and soft after a long sea voyage, it was a stiff tramp. In the pitch dark, as silent as the grave, we stumbled along and finally arrived at the camp outside Heliopolis, a place known as the Aerodrome. Lieutenant Colonel Sutherland and Major Helsham were camped with their ambulance close by, and with most kindly forethought had pitched our tents for us. We just lay down in our greatcoats and slept till morning. Our brigade was camped just across the road and formed part of the New Zealand and Australian Division under General Sir Alexander Godley. Training soon began, and everyone seemed full of the idea of making himself fit. Our peace camps and continuous training at home looked very puny and small in comparison with the work which now occupied our time. At manoeuvres the number of troops might be anything up to 30,000. To march in the rear of such a column meant that each of the ambulances soon swallowed its peck of dirt. But with it all, we were healthy and vigorous. As an ambulance we practised all sorts of movements, under supposition that we might have to retreat suddenly, the whole camp would be struck, packed on the wagon and taken down the sewers road, 
where it was pitched again, ready to receive patients. Then tents would be struck, and a return made to camp. Or we would make a start after nightfall, and practice the movements without lights, the transport handling the horses in the dark. Or the different sections would march out independently, and concentrate on a point agreed upon. It was great practice, but in the end not necessary, for we went not to France, as we expected, but to Gallipoli, where we had no horses. However, it taught the men to believe in themselves. That period of training was great. Everyone benefited, and by the beginning of April we felt fit for anything. We were exceedingly well looked after in the way of a standing camp. Sand, of course, was everywhere, but when watered it became quite hard, and the quadrangle made a fine drill ground. Each unit had a mess house in which the men had their meals. There was an abundant supply of water obtained from the Nile, so that shower baths were plentiful. Canteens were established, and the men were able to supplement their rations. The YMCA erected buildings for the men's entertainment, which served an excellent purpose in keeping the troops in camp. Cinematographs showed pictures, and all around the camp dealers established shops, so that there was very little inducement for men to leave at night. A good deal of our time was occupied in weeding out undesirables from the brigade. Thank goodness I had not to send a man from the ambulance back for this reason. Apart from the instructive side of our stay in Egypt, the sojourn was most educational. We were camped just on the edge of the land of Goshen. The place where Joseph obtained his wife was only about a mile away from my tent, and the well where the Virgin Mother rested with our Saviour was in close proximity. The same water-wheels are here as are mentioned in the Bible, and one can see the camels and asses brought to water, and the women going to and fro with pitchers on their head. Then in the museum in Cairo one could see the mummy of the Pharaoh of Joseph's time. All this made the Bible quite the most interesting book to read. The troops, having undergone pretty strenuous training, we were inspected by Sir Ian Hamilton, who was to command us in the forthcoming campaign. Then, early in April, the commanding officers of units were assembled at headquarters, and the different ships allotted. Finally, on the evening of the 11th of April, our camp was struck, and we bade good-bye to Heliopolis. The wagons were packed, and the ambulance moved off, marching to the railway station in Cairo. 9.30 was the time fixed for our entraining, and we were there on the minute, and it was as well that such was the case, for General Williams stood at the gate to watch proceedings. The wagons with four horses, drivers mounted of course, were taken at a trot up an incline through a narrow gateway onto the platform. The horses were then taken out and to the rear, and the wagons placed on the trucks by Egyptian porters. We had sixteen vehicles, sixty-nine horses, ten officers and two hundred and forty-five men. The whole was entrained in thirty-five minutes. The general was very pleased with the performance, and asked me to convey his approbation to the men. Certainly they did well. To Gallipoli 
At midnight we left Cairo and arrived at daybreak at Alexandria, the train running right onto the wharf, alongside which was the transport to convey us to Gallipoli, the Dardanelles as we called it then. Loading started almost immediately, and I found that I, who in ordinary life am a peaceful citizen and a surgeon by profession, had to direct operations by which our wagons were to be removed from railway trucks onto the wharf and thence to the ship's hold. Men with some knowledge of the mysteries of steam winches had to be specially selected and instructed in these duties, and I, well, beyond at times watching a ship being loaded at Newcastle, I was as innocent of their details as the unborn babe. However, every one went at it, and the transport was loaded soon after dinner. We had the New Zealand Battery of Artillery, Battery Ammunition Column, 14th Battalion Transport and Army Service Corps with us, the whole numbering 560 men and 480 horses. At 4 p.m. the ship cast off, and we went to the outer harbour and began to shake down. The same hour the next day saw us under way for the front. The voyage was quite uneventful, the sea beautifully calm, and the various islands in the Aegean Sea most picturesque. Three days later we arrived at Lemnos, and found the harbour, which is of considerable size, packed with warships and transports. I counted twenty warships of various sizes and nationalities. The Agamemnon was just opposite us, showing signs of the damage she had received in the bombardment of the Turkish forts a couple of months ago. We stayed here a week, and every day practised going ashore in boats, each man in full marching order leaving the ship by the pilot ladder. It is extraordinary how one adapts oneself to circumstances. For years it had been almost painful for me to look down from a height. As for going down a ladder, in ordinary times I could not do it. However, here there was no help for it. A commanding officer cannot order his men to do what he will not do himself. So up and down we went in full marching order. Bearer work was carried out amongst the stony hills which surround the harbour. Finally, on the 24th of April, the whole armada got under way headed by the Queen Elizabeth, or as the men affectionately termed her, Lizzie. We had been under steam for only about four hours when a case of smallpox was reported on board. As the captain informed me he had time to spare, we returned to Lemnos and landed the man, afterward proceeding on our journey. At night the ships were darkened. Our ship carried eight horse-boats, which were to be used by the 29th Division in their landing at Cape Hellas. Just before dawn, on Sunday the 25th, I came on deck, and could see the forms of a number of warships in close proximity to us, with destroyers here and there, and numbers of transports. Suddenly one ship fired a gun, and then they were all at it, the Turks replying in quick time from the forts on Sadul Bar, as well as from those on the Asiatic side. None of our ships appeared to be hit, but great clouds of dust were thrown up in the forts opposite us. Meanwhile, destroyers were passing us loaded with troops, and barges filled with grim and determined-looking men were being towed toward the shore. One could not help wondering how many of them would be alive in an hour's time. 
Slowly they neared the cliffs. As the first barge appeared to ground, a burst of fire broke out along the beach, alternately rifles and machine-guns. The men leapt out of the barges. Almost at once the firing on the beach ceased, and more came from halfway up the cliff. The troops had obviously landed and were driving the Turks back. After a couple of hours the top of the cliff was gained. There the troops became exposed to a very heavy fire from some batteries of artillery placed well in the rear, to which the warships attended as soon as they could locate them. The Queen Elizabeth was close by us, apparently watching a village just under the fort. Evidently some guns were placed there. She loosed off her two fifteen-inch guns, and after the dust had cleared away, we could see that new streets had been made for the inhabitants. Meanwhile the British had gained the top and were making headway, but losing a lot of men. We could see them falling everywhere. End of Part 1